Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Megan French Dunbar, the co-founder of Conscious Company Magazine. Megan is a happy mountain girl, a sustainability dork, and a budding entrepreneur. In this episode, we talk about what it takes to start a print publication, the courage, the guts, the determination. We talk about the trials and tribulations of the startup life and the amazing people she's met along the journey. And we also discuss why socially driven businesses are gonna have the advantage, if not already, as our future unfolds. You're gonna love her energy, her spirit, and I've just gotta say, if the future of leadership looks and feels anything like Megan, the world is in great shape. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this engaging interview with Megan French Dunbar. Megan, what the hell is going on? How are you? <laughs> Brian, I'm doing really, really well. I am honored and delighted to be um, with you today and uh, just so excited for this conversation. So thank uh, you for the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for taking time out. I know that you and Marin and the team at Conscious Company Magazine are just going gangbusters. And I actually want to start there. I mean, with all due respect, you and Marin must be batshit crazy to start a magazine in 2014, 2015. And I applaud you for having such beautiful dreams to do this and see it through and to turn it into the early success that it's been so far. What the hell possessed you guys to start a magazine? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, I feel like I'm bad. Shit crazy should be on my my business card or something. Um, <laughs> Marin and I, yeah, I, we we get this a lot. Um, a lot of people kind of push back and are super interested in our decision to launch a print publication. Um, but as we saw it, it was just this gaping hole in the market where magazines aren't going away. Um, I don't believe the print industry is dying. I think there's actually evidence to the contrary. Um, when you really look into the industry, it's a $38 billion industry. And as we were looking at this, we realized there wasn't a beautifully produced, well-written offering that simply talked about sustainable business. And it's a burgeoning movement. There's all these businesses that are really um, doing amazing things in the world, and nobody was actually telling their stories or aggregating the voices of this movement so that we could actually start making progress and learn from our mistakes and have a an area where we aggregate best practices, tools, tips, and insights from the people who have been doing this work for, you know, sometimes 40 years. Um, there's this wealth of information. So we had the crazy idea. It was actually two years ago last week. Um, we hatched the idea over a bottle of wine and a pizza at a local shop here in Boulder, Colorado. And um, I think we are just young enough and just crazy enough and just naive enough to, to think that we could actually do it. Um, and it kind of started as this 
beautiful dream to see if we could. Um, I think we were more just kind of interested to see if we could launch a magazine. And then once we did launch a magazine, we've just been holding on for dear life because um, we are, are kind of hypothesis that people wanted this and that a print magazine would succeed in the space proved to be totally true. Um, people are hungry for this. People are excited for it. With our first magazine, we we're in every Whole Foods in the United States. Um, we've just grown tremendously over the last year. And so um, I think I think many social entrepreneurs are batshit crazy. And um, that's also what gives them kind of this audacious and bold attitude to do new things and to change the world, frankly. And I don't want to completely lump myself into that category and say that we're changing the world, but we're, we're doing something really bold and it's exciting. And people are really excited about how um, unique the value proposition is and that we actually did launch a print publication in 2014. So, um, Yeah. There's a babble of an answer for you. <laughs> no, it's a great answer. It's a great answer. So let, let, let me, let, let's talk about it a little bit more. So back in, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the summer of 2014, you ran your Kickstarter campaign, uh, trying to raise the money to get this, this bad boy going. And you fell like eight grand short of a $50,000 goal. Uh, of the Kickstarter campaign. And if, if my understanding of Kickstarter is right, if you fall short of the goal, the money evaporates and goes back to those that pledged it. And, and I would imagine that moment was, I mean, that's a gut check, like, holy shit kind of moment. What do I have my facts right? And if so, what was going through your mind and through Marin's mind when you fell just short of your goal? Yeah. Um, Oh wow, it's such it's just like such an interesting time in, in in life when you sometimes your biggest failures become these gut check moments that really prove to you how badly you want something. Um you are correct. We did raise forty two thousand dollars or eight thousand dollars short. Um I believe this was in August two thousand fourteen. And we basically already put together our first issue of the magazine and just needed the money to get it to shelves. Um, and fun fact on Kickstarter, when you get down to your last two minutes, it actually start, starts counting down by the second. Oh, God. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget that moment. Marin and I were sitting on the floor of her apartment watching it and like willing the computer, willing just some like last minute Hail Mary that someone was going to send an $8,000 and it didn't happen. Um, and it was one of the first times that I'd really failed in you know in such a heavy way in my life and also failed very publicly in front of our friends and family and all these people who are rooting for us um so i i would characterize that day as just fucking awful um and also beautiful because i i came home my husband came home from work because he knew that i was going to just be beside myself watching my dream go down the toilet and all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm laying on the couch. I think I was like watching some crappy movie and eating, you know, junk food and just crying my face off. And I see two pairs of shoes at the door and I open the door and my dad is standing there. He'd driven all the way up to Boulder um, and, you know, brought me some like comfort food and basically just sat with me on the couch and said, like, don't give up. Like, this is your dream. You have people who support you don't give up like you can still find a way and that was the message that we got from all of our friends and supporters all the people who supported the kickstarter campaign we just got hundreds of emails from people saying just do another campaign just just do it again like this is a great idea you guys have to do it 
Um, so Marin and I, we took a week apart from each other and just apart from the project and to, to see what it would feel like. Um, and in that week, I kept coming back to this question of asking myself a year from now, if I looked back, would I have felt like I did everything that I could? Um, would I, I don't think anyone would have blamed me or Marin for giving up when we lost that money and when we lost this like humongous dream of ours. I think, you know, in fact, many people probably expected us to give up at that time. Um, and that's also, it was also just this moment of realizing, um, I have this quote that I say a lot that um, it's kind of in the what doesn't kill you, make you makes you stronger, but it's right. only to it only to the extent that we annihilate ourselves over and over do we find that within ourselves is indestructible. And I felt like Marin and I, we found that that something inside of ourselves that was totally indestructible. And it, it happened to be just kind of this dream around this magazine. And, and we found this strength to keep going. And we launched another or another crowdfunding campaign. And this time we did it on Indiegogo. And they had a platform where you just raise as much money as you want. And we set a goal. We didn't even hit that goal, but we had, you know, more than 50% of the people who supported us on Kickstarter came back over, pledged their same amount. We raised over $20,000 and it was just enough. I mean, I'm talking, <laughs> we were like $500 away from being able to print the first magazine and get it to shelves. Um, and so that's what we did. We just scraped it together. We took our entire life savings at it. Um, every, you know, personal credit card Marin and I had, we just made it work. Um, and I'm damn glad that we did. And I'm, I'm really glad that we gutted through it and kind of took that failure as this opportunity to understand how bad we really wanted it because now we are, here we are, you know, it's been a full year and a half since that moment of failure and we're working on our seventh issue. We're internationally distributed and we've just grown in such a tremendous way. We weren't even expecting it. So um, yeah, it was, it was a good moment when, now that I look back on it, although at the time it just felt terrible. I tell you, um, uh, and I'm biased probably, um, but your magazine, what you and Marin and your team have created is the highest quality publication that I have held both aesthetically as well as read from a quality perspective. And I'm drinking the same Kool-Aid that you guys are, as many of our listeners are. But it's it's an unbelievable publication. It's full of amazing content. It's full of, of amazing editorial, amazing interviews, phenomenal advertisers that really care about making a difference in the world. And I think, frankly, it's beginning to me, it's it's larger than just being a representation of organizations in the sustainability area and companies that want to use business as a force for good. I've often thought of what you guys are doing as really beginning to fly in the face of traditional media in a way that the media we're used to is if it bleeds, it leads mentality and the advertisers are putting their money behind shock and awe type stories and, and, and value in order to get the most eyeballs. But that's not what your magazine's about. You're not painting these horrific pictures of um, things that are just going to get advertising dollars. You actually have a core purpose that's about spreading goodness and, and optimism and hope and all the things that we can aspire to as a human race. And, and frankly, I, I think it's, 
it's about damn time. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, we're we're we went into it knowing that in order for us to succeed, we had to do it a little bit differently, and that we had to had this incredible focus on design and beauty and the aesthetic value of the magazine, and and that was just really important to Marin and I from the get go. And then one of the things that we're seeing is that, um, and, I, and I don't think. This is just exclusive to the millennial generation. I think there's just an overall mindset that's shifting. But millennials in particular are super interested in purpose and value. And they're not interested in, you know, kind of aggregating wealth just for wealth's sake. They want work that defines them. They want work that gives them purpose and meaning. And we've seen other media outlets that have had tremendous success just being very positive, like Upworthy and BuzzFeed and Good Magazine are all just great examples of people who kind of are trailblazers in the positive media space. Um, we are, as we as we can see it, we're kind of the first in the business realm to just talk about businesses that do good for the world. And people are super hungry for this information. And it's it's just inspiring every day to see how many, you know, emails and calls we get from people saying that like reading our magazine has actually changed their life. Um, and Marin and I said at the out that that if we could change if we got one person who said that then we then we would have considered our endeavor a success and now we're a year and a half into it and we get letters like that all the time so it's um people are really hungry for it people want positivity and we have it as a core value of our company we'll never compromise the integrity of our information to get advertising dollars we just won't um and we are going to remain focused on the positive stories because um, the, the world needs more of it so amen amen we'll keep keep it up keep it up you know let, i, I want to talk about marin just for a moment and you know uh this journey that the two of you have been on together and it seems that there's some organizations who are uh also uh, on this journey of conscious capitalism, of very purpose-driven, very mission-driven, very values-driven organization that have found some some considerable success having um, co-leaders, whether it's called co-CEO, co-leaders, co-founders, whatever it is. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the dynamic and how you and Marin balance one another and and maybe some challenges that you guys have had along the way as you've been building this thing. I'm, I'm curious. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, we've been kind of referring to ourselves as co-CEOs um, and it's, it's been one of the best decisions we've made as a young company. Um, I'm not uh, bold enough to believe that my ideas are going to lead us to success. I, I 100% think it's going to be, you know, our, our collaboration of ideas and then bringing even more team members to the table now. But um, Marin is, um, I would say, I, I would define our relationship at this point as family. We, um, I feel like I am basically essentially married to her outside of my husband. I have this relationship with her where we basically see our relationship as a marriage and the magazine is our child and we hold our relationship with each other in the highest regard and we work on it. We work with a coach together. Um, we have, you know, kind of a quarterly time where we spend time, just the two of us working on maintaining our friendship and our, our positivity between the two of us, because I can, the challenging aspect of all of this, um, is when you are in a startup and you have a partner 
you're kind of in a pressure cooker with that person. And it's, it's human nature when things go, things go wrong to look to the person to your right or to your left. And when you're in a partnership like this in a small company, you know, you're, you're always looking at the other person and just trying to come out and understand that blaming people and, you know, having, um, unrealistic expectations for a partner has been really, really important for us. Um, and so those, those are kind of some of the challenges that we've experienced as a partnership is just kind of that understanding that it's neither one of our fault. It's just the nature of startups being super, super hard. Um, and then in terms of kind of how we complement each other, we're, we, we're polar opposites, um, both personality-wise and work style, but it's also what's led to our success. We um, we very rarely agree, and so it also makes it so this, this beautiful space where we're respectful in our disagreement with each other, and it typically, like, the best thought wins out um, because it has to, because you actually, you have to understand what you're willing to fight for and what you're willing to let go of when it comes to your ideas and the way you think things should be done. So uh, Marin's definitely the more analytical of the two of us. Um, she's very systems and design heavy, and I'm more kind of in, intuitive and emotional. And if we didn't have those complementary skill sets on the team, we'd be super imbalanced. So um, we've we've just developed this rock solid, crazy, hilarious sisterhood. Um, and it's also, I think it's one of the only reasons that we've succeeded so far, because if, if our relationship disintegrated at any point, um, the magazine would go with it. So it's, it's just been super important. And also um, just kind of the overall strategic vision has been collaborated upon. And it isn't just one person's ideas, it's both of ours, along with our collective team. So it's, it's been great. So the team that you've built, um, it, it's very apparent to me. And frankly, I think it's awesome. And I'm curious, the majority of your, not only your staff, your team, but also your advisory board is heavily skewed female. Have you done that on purpose? <laughs> no, no, we have not. Um, uh, of course, we uh, kind of see the value of, of a feminine approach in many different regards to business, but um, the actual just specifically trying to have a women-only team was definitely not the way we're supposed to go. Um, we we have a couple males who are working for us in the copy editing department, but our full-time staff at this moment is all female. Um, and so that's it's been an interesting uh, conversation for us internally because we realized obviously there's a little bit of an unconscious bias where when you look at our team it's all women between the ages of 30 and 40 um, and and when you're in a startup you kind of aggregate toward your comfort zones and when you're hiring people you often hire from your network and hiring from your network obviously there's implicit trust there and you know the people you're hiring and at the same time it facilitates this um, like I said, this unconscious bias towards stacking your team with people who are very much like you and very similar to you. Um, and so we have just recently had the conversation internally about how do we very intentionally diversify our staff, um, you know, not just not just gender, but race and religion and perspective and, and everything along those lines um, so that we can kind of build it out. I, I will say, however, that the all-female team so far, so good. Um, we, um, we, we have six of us at the table right now, and 
we are rocking and rolling and we're, we're making tremendous progress. There's no drama. It's, um, it's, it's a very agreeable team and we're all having a ton of fun working. So um, I think regardless of gender or race or, or the diversity of the team, one of the most important things we've done is set out very, very clear on our purpose, on our vision, on our values as an organization, and then on our operating principles and team agreements on how we treat each other and how we treat everyone that we come into contact with, basically all of our stakeholders. Um, so we've, we've essentially hired the very best people for the job and people who are top of their class and, and kind of like cream of the crop. And they happen to have all been women at this point, but it's definitely not something that we're, um, it's definitely not a policy by any stretch of the imagination. Gotcha. So it's just, it's, uh, it is what it is just due to hiring the best person for the role that was available at that time. Exactly. Got it. So, uh, Let's let's talk about the magazine and specifically the people that you and Marin and the team have had the opportunity to interview and feature and profile. Who's been and, and I know this is a bit of an unfair question because I have no doubt you've taken away some amazing things from everybody you've had the chance to interact with. But who over the last six, seven issues, who who's delivered that holy shit moment like, wow, I can't believe we just got to interact with so and so and this is what we learned from it. Oh wow! Um, I know it's I, the <laughs> the biggest holy shit moments for me so far has been walking into Eileen Fisher's house in New York and sitting at her kitchen table and talking to her. Um, share with everybody just real the, quick. Share with everyone real quick Eileen <laughs> Fisher and who she is and what her company stands for, just so people have a clue. Um, of course, yeah. So Eileen Fisher, it's a, it's actually a fashion label, um, multi-million dollar, 30-year-old clothing brand, primarily for women. Um, and she um, had this in just beautiful story where she she's in her 60s. She was looking to retire, hand the company off. She went on kind of this vision quest in the Amazon and this sounds so cliche, but this is what happened. Um, and she met someone who was talking to her about her purpose in life. And she realized that the purpose of her life wasn't to retire and hand the reins of her company over. Her purpose in life was to take the reins of her company and make the most sustainable fashion brand in existence. Um, so she actually came back from this trip from the Amazon in 2012 and righted the ship of her company. And it's, it's a humongous company. And is by 2020, their vision is to be the most holistically sustainable apparel line in existence. And they are well on track to do so. They have this tremendous team there. And so um, she's, she's just this, this vision. She's this beautiful soul and walking into, she actually invited us to her home and um, walking into her home with just, it, there's just this energy there. And then sitting down with her at the table, you kind of, you can build up people in your brain about what they're going to be like. And, you know, I'm expecting this like New York fashion icon and I'm like this bolder hippie girl walking in there. And I was worried, I, I didn't know what to wear. And I was worried I was going to be intimidated <laughs> by her. And, you know, what do you wear to like a fashion mogul's house? I don't know. Um, well, clearly and, Birkenstocks and a whole bunch of patchouli, right? <laughs> 
my mom was actually going to buy me an Eileen Fisher t-shirt. And then I, I, I don't even remember the movie, like wearing the name of wearing the band's t-shirt to the concert or whatever. Um, it felt like that moment where I couldn't walk into her house wearing my new Eileen Fisher shirt. Cause she'd know I was just totally kissing her ass. Right. Um, right. So yeah, I was, I was so um, just nervous walking into it and I sat down at the table and she comes out and she's the most kind hearted gentle sweet soul I've ever come across we had the most amazing conversation at the end of it I'm crying like it's and her whole staff was that way she had many of her team members were at her house there and they were listening in on the interview and you could just tell by the people that surrounded her by the people that were on her team that she was the real deal um and there was something so authentic and wonderful about her so that was that for me was like a not just socks off sort of moment and then we've also just had other moments like that, I would I would also put a nod out to Chip Conley. We had a, a very similar interaction with him. He welcomed us into his home in San Francisco, and Marin and I sat with him in in his backyard and did just this two hour long interview that like opened up my entire soul. Um, it, was, it, was, it was like the lamest thing I could ever say, opened up my soul, but it did. Um, it was. It was just really eye-opening and tremendous. And then you're sitting across from this man who has a multi-million-dollar hotel chain, um, you know. And so if there's just these interesting conversations like that. And I could go if you if you let me loose, I would just sit here all day and talk about all the amazing interviews. So I'll try to shut up. But no, um, I love the only it. other one, <laughs> the only other one that I'll mention, and it's probably just because it's top of mind and it's fresh, and we just did it, and we're really really excited about it is. Um, we spoke with Nick Hill and Alex from Back to the Root. Oh, sure. To their office. Um, they're going to be on the cover of our May-June issue, which is all focused on youth and millennials. And those two just have that, like, special something. And they have, and, and I feel like there was something very um, familial about them where Marin and I were sitting across from them. We're all the same age. And... Marin and I as two women co-founders and the two of them as these two male co-founders, we're all the same age and we're all just doing all this crazy shit in the world. Um, so there was a, a kind of connection with them on, on that regard, but then also the actual work that they're doing and the number of products they've launched and the, the waves that they're making in the food world just blew my mind. So um, yeah, those three kind of stick out as ones that have blown my mind, but there's, you know, Probably, probably like fifty that I could talk about. I have no doubt. I have no doubt, and 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 dozens and dozens and dozens more to come for sure. Let's let's talk about some and substance. Um, I, I want you to share with with us what this thing's all about, how you got involved, um, where it's at today from where it started. Um, t- talk about some and substance. Yeah. So we. Um, we went to do our launch party for the magazine last year, March of 2015. We had had our first issue out and we really wanted to kind of have like our coming out party for the community here in Boulder and just get to know the community. Um, and instead of just kind of having your typical like cheese cubes and crackers and cup of plastic wine or whatever, we went to our advisory board and said, does anyone have any ideas for how we could make this tremendous? And marijuana is legal in in Colorado, right? So the hell with plastic cups of wine, you just roll some doobies and get on with it, right? (laughs) No comment. (laughs) Uh, Yes. 
we, we went to our advisory board. We have the chairman of our, our advisory board is a wonderful human being by the name of Nathan Havey, and he's the president of a group called Thrive Consulting Group. And he basically came up with this idea. He said, what if we did a live storytelling event? Your magazine is all about storytelling. So what if we actually brought that to a, a community space and we brought together five to six business leaders and they talk about what it's like to find purpose and fulfillment and joy in their work. And we were like, yeah, it sounds great. Like if you want to help us organize it, let's do it. And so he and his team helped us organize um, that first event. We had six storytellers here in Colorado for our launch party and we sold out. I mean, we sold out the tickets. It was standing room only here at the Impact Hub. and we had just a delightful event. And after the event, the next day, we had a mutual friend of ours who had been in attendance at the event. And she called me up and said that she had quit her job as a result of attending the event. And it was wow. like one of those, like, yeah, like, yeah. We, you know, like our little, like, puppy ears went up like like what did we actually do something important last night um, <laughs> like was it like more than just uh you know like a feel-good event like where did we actually move the needle and then the next day we got an email from a stranger who said that attending the event had catapulted him into realizing that he wanted to pursue starting his own business, that he's been thinking about it for years, and that seeing Marin and I up on stage, two kind of young women who had this crazy dream of launching a magazine, that we actually did it, and then hearing from six people who had all found joy and fulfillment in their work, and it all came you know, in most cases, it, it just comes from people following their passion and doing what they want to do and starting that business or taking the leap or quitting or, you know, whatever you need to do to, to reach that goal. So he said that he wanted to start a business. And so that kind of second touch point was when we said, holy shit, like, we have something really important here. Um, so we ended up talking to Nathan and his team at Thrive Consulting Group, and they basically came back to us with the exact same sentiment saying, like, you know, we we intended to do a launch party, and instead we launched an event series. We we have something really special here. Let's, let's take this on the road. And so um, as Marin and I tend to do, we just decided to dive right in and launch a national event series. And so Why in 2015, not? Yeah, I know. I know it sounds crazy, but as a, you know, it just seems so like the logical next step at the time. Um, I mean, the magazine so, was up and running, and you had that all figured out already. So why not, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, adding more stuff to our plate. I don't know, uh, but we Nathan and his team kind of rose to the occasion and said, "Let's go fifty-fifty on this sucker, and let's own an event series, and let's take it national." And so we went. In 2015, we did Chicago, Boston, Seattle, Dallas, and Raleigh, North Carolina. And how'd you choose the cities? Some... How'd you how'd you pick? <laughs> we just like threw a dart at a map. <laughs> <laughs> the very scientific no. way. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we we actually were somewhat intentional about it. We we came up with um, cities where we could find excellent partner organizations who could kind of help us co-host the event. And a lot of those happen to be conscious capitalism chapters. Um, and also areas where we just had great networks. Um, and so like Marin went to grad school in Seattle and had this amazing network up there. And so we ended up pulling the event together there. Um, and so those first five events we were really just piloting 
um, exactly how to perfect the event and then also kind of the business model behind the event. And what we realized was the partner organization on the ground was hands down the most critical component of us taking this on the road and our largest event and, and pretty much most successful one in 2015 was in Dallas. The Dallas Conscious Capitalism chapter just lit it up. They they could not have been a better partner. They did, you know, just went above and beyond. We had a sold out crowd um, and the energy in the room was just palpable. It was it was just tremendous. And so at the end of 2015, we kind of all sat around and scratched our head and had that same feeling of like, well, we have something here. It's wonderful. And should we keep going? Um, even though we haven't quite figured out the economics behind it, it's changing people's lives and we're getting these amazing notes from people. And we actually do um, a survey at the end of every event where we're actually aggregating an, a like large amount of data on purpose and work and how people currently feel about their jobs. And through that data aggregation, we've realized that, you know, people are relatively unhappy and they're really seeking events like this where you can come and learn about what it feels like to find purpose and joy in your work. So in 2016, we decided let's just do a whole nother round and see what sort of damage we can do in 2016. And so we're doing, I believe, six events in 2016. We still have one that's on the fence. Um, but the next one will be in Phoenix uh, in collaboration with the Phoenix Conscious Capitalism chapter, of which you are um, a, a leader and a, a strong part of. So we're really excited for that at the end of April. Um, and then from there, we'll be bringing it to Denver, San Francisco, New York. Um, and we're going back to Dallas, actually, because Dallas um, requested that we did because they loved the event so much last year that they wanted to do it again this year. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I know that uh, we're very much looking forward to it. Uh, April 28th, I believe, is the date. I know a venue has been selected. I don't remember it off the top of my head, uh, but uh, I know the, the website for it, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is someandsubstance.com. Is that correct? It is just someandsub.com. That's right. That's um, right. That's right. That's right. Some and sub. Some S-U-M and A-N-D sub S-U-B.com. That's right. My apologies. My apologies. No, please don't apologize. We wish we could have gotten the domain name someandsubstance.com. It makes a lot more sense, but it was already taken. Well, now. yeah, I'm sure somebody's squatting on it and wanted to sell it to you for some ungodly sum of money and they're likely not. <laughs> All, or maybe I'm completely wrong, but uh, nonetheless, <laughs> you and Thrive and the and your partners are using it for 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 good, for very good, and changing people's lives. So, if the SumAndSubstance.com folks are out there and you 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 have a heart, sell <laughs> sell sell them the URL for cheap for crying out loud. Good Just happen Lord. to be listening to this. Yeah, right, right, exactly. In the unlikely event. Uh, so I want to completely switch gears for a minute, and I want to focus on the time you spent. Uh, you you spent, uh, boy, I hope I'm right here. Otherwise, this gear switch is going to be a giant train wreck. But you spent time <laughs> living in Costa Rica, right? I did. So I've been there once. It was 17 years ago. It was for my honeymoon. My wife and I spent a week there. A little over a week, and I'm sure it's changed a lot since the time I was there. But I'm curious, the time you spent living there, because it's really different than Boulder, Colorado. What about living there and your experience in Costa Rica and living in a different country has shaped what you're doing today, if at all? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, 
And I, I can tell you definitively, there was definitely moments that shaped where I am today from my time living in Costa Rica. I actually lived in downtown San Jose, which is not the postcard-worthy uh, Costa Rica vision that everyone has in their mind. Um, and there's a couple things that really came from that experience for me. One was just a deep appreciation of my life in Colorado and Boulder and um, just kind of this wonderful life I had in the States where um, living in San Jose, and you know, this is true of any major city or you know, pretty much anywhere, but just that time in San Jose for me was the first time in my life where I lived in a place where I couldn't walk around at night by myself, uh, where I was harassed, where um, you know, fellow teachers that I was down there with were mugged at gunpoint, and the area where we were living was pretty sketchy. Um, and it was just one of those eye-opening moments. I was when I lived down there, I was like 23 of the first time I, I grew up in a really small mountain town here in Colorado. And then my move to Boulder for college was really Boulder seemed like the big city to me. Um, so living in San Jose, it just completely shaped this like entire worldly view of my, you know, that I now hold around um, just appreciating the place where I live and the safety that I have here. And also just understanding how severe some of the problems are, um, you know, both in the United States and also all over the world. That was the first time I kind of lived among that. Um, and then second, the other part that was really kind of informative to where I am right now is seeing um, when I was down there, they were actually voting on the North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement. And Costa Ricans were deeply, deeply divided over this. They, 50% of the country really wanted it. 50% of them really didn't. And there were riots in the street. There were protests. There was just all this civic engagement around people not wanting the United States and, and North American countries to really have a humongous presence down there. Um, and we, I mean, we actually had a situation at the school where I was teaching where we had to be evacuated by police and driven back to our homes because there were people who'd found out that there were Americans teaching at the school and they were outside with guns. Um, and so there was just this deep divide and I didn't understand it at the time. Well, I, I would say I came to understand it at the time when I went to these, you know, kind of more rural areas that were pristine and untouched by by trade and untouched by commerce that were somewhat undeveloped but were just so ecologically diverse and gorgeous and the people were so kind. And then you'd go to other areas in Costa Rica that had really been touched by I'll, I'll quote, you know, kind of development, but it was really more this Americanization where there's these big resorts and the water was being polluted and there's construction everywhere. And it was like the paving paradise to put up a parking lot sort of situation where I actually saw the destruction that um, development can do when it's not when there's no regard for the local community. And so it was the first time that I'd actually kind of had this systems thinking lens put on things where I realized like development can be good if it's done in the right way. And if the businesses coming into those areas really care about the local community, but if they don't, they come in and they kind of shit all over everything in the name of economic development. And simultaneously, they piss off a lot of people and they put people out of jobs and they crush local economies. Um, and so that was 
my kind of first entry into the field of sustainability, where I realized that there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be businesses that care. There has to be developers that care. And that launched me into the kind of sustainability arena, I'll say. And when I got back from Costa Rica, I landed a job at the Environmental Defense Fund, where I worked for six years. Um, and I, I loved my work there, but I definitely would not have ended up at EDF had I not lived in Costa Rica and, and just kind of seen the the overall systems thinking approach that could have been applied and wasn't. You know, it's fascinating to me. You know, you taught, you said the word uh, care and this, this concept of leaders who care and businesses who care and a business world that can aspire to do better things with the power of the business that they have. And as you and Marin and your team have come into contact with so many different leaders, um, probably those who are genuine and authentically care and maybe a handful, I don't know, of some that uh, certainly throughout your life, but maybe not while you've been running the magazine, uh, but some who just... They just don't, and they still see business as a game. They see it as a zero-sum game. They see it as a very shareholder-only, uh, shareholder maximization-only game. You know, the question for me that comes up, and I'm curious how you feel about it as, as we begin to wind our chat down here, is uh, there's enough data out there that points to the businesses that are driven by higher purpose, that truly believe in it, that align all of their stakeholders stakeholders to this higher purpose, are over the long run outperforming those uh, in the market. And yet here we are, 2016, and you said it earlier, most people are relatively unhappy, so much so that they're coming to your summoned substance events and quitting their jobs or finding it as a source of inspiration to encourage them to pursue a life of, of passion and doing something that's actually going to light them up every day as opposed to deplete them. My question is, why do our business leaders, by and large, why do they still not get it that caring is so incredibly powerful? Hmm. I, I wish I knew. Um, that's kind of part of our charge as a magazine is to continue making the business case for these practices so that quote traditional business people could pick up our magazine um, and actually understand that there's bottom line implications for treating your stakeholders well and for having a regard for the environment and um, actually doing things with purpose and care. I, I think um, and this is just, you know, I, I'm steeped in this stuff every day. And so this is a completely subjective opinion, but I, I just think it's inevitable. Um, there's so many different va variables that are coming into play right now. Um, the access, the, the actual access to information that we have nowadays is all of our smartphones and the fact that, you know, at the touch of a button, you can look up almost anything. I think it's making it so there has to be a level of transparency in the business realm. And when businesses aren't transparent, then people don't trust them. And when people don't trust them, they don't buy their products and services. Um, so there's kind of that force is playing in on it. I think the millennial generation, I don't know why, um, and it might be because of that access to information, but they just grow up caring about things differently and wanting more out of work. They have a different mentality. They don't want to work 
somewhere their entire career, build a life savings, and then give some of that to charity when they're 65 and travel the world. They want purpose now, um, and they want they want to be giving back immediately, and they want that to be done day after day. Um, so in terms of kind of, you know, millennials are now the largest um, section of the workforce in the United States. And so in order to attract and retain them, um, there needs to be some sort of level of purpose as well. So somewhere in that like perfect storm of all these different components that are coming about, I, I just think it's inevitable. And it's um, adding on top of that, it's what you said, like, it's just smart business um, <laughs> businesses that actually take these factors into account there's a level of risk mitigation there there's a level of strategic thinking and that systems thinking approach where they're actually kind of mitigating many of the long-term potentials for disaster that are down the road by actually thinking through all the different scenarios of how things can play out and that only happens when you take into account all of your stakeholders um so yeah, there's. I'm, I'm babbling towards something, but it's along the lines of I. I don't understand why there's some business leaders who don't get it right now, and I think that that's just kind of an old school opinion. But I, I do believe it's completely inevitable. And our tagline for the magazine is actually the future of business as usual. And I do believe that our business magazine, you know, 10 to 20 years from now, will just be a business magazine. It's not going to be a sustainable business magazine. It's just going to be a business magazine because it's going to be how business will be done in the future. I, be I believe you. I believe in it. And uh, I absolutely applaud what you, Marin, your team are doing. Uh, I want you to share with our listeners uh, how uh, they can subscribe to the magazine, how they can pick up a magazine. What are, what are the various ways that uh, people can get Conscious Company Magazine into their hands? Of course, yeah. Um, our website is ConsciousCompanyMagazine.com, and there's uh, a pretty um, evident little button right at the beginning there where you can subscribe and take a look at all of our past issues, um, as well as if you want to find it on stands, we're currently, I hope I can rattle off this list, we're in every Whole Foods in the nation, we're in Barnes & Noble, Target, Sprouts, Natural Grocers, Books A Million, HEB, Publix, and a number of small, like local retailers, a lot of like little mini natural grocers and stuff like that. Um, so we're pretty widely distributed at this point. We're in 49 states, frickin' Wyoming, for some reason, is holding out on us. Those um, losers and, in Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't get it. Um, and then we're, we're also sold in Canada and Mexico as well. So um, there's many different options for kind of finding the magazine, but the easiest is most likely the website. Excellent. That website, again, is ConsciousCompanyMagazine.com. Megan, I, I love chatting with you. I, I, I get a tremendous amount of energy when I'm in your presence, uh, when I chat with you, whether it's on the phone, through email, your sense of humor, your passion for what you're doing, the difference in the world that you are already making and will continue to make is so incredibly admirable. I wish you nothing but the best and can't thank you enough for spending the time with us. I feel all of those same things about you. And like I said at the beginning, I'm honored and delighted to be on the show and uh, just think the absolute world of you and the work that you're doing in the world. So um, just totally grateful for our time. Well, thanks. Really appreciate it, Megan. Have a fantastic rest of your day. And I have no doubt our paths will cross soon. Absolutely. Thank you. 
Until next time, thank you for listening, folks. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast on our website, yscouts.com forward slash podcast. There were quite a few questions I didn't have the opportunity to address during my time with Megan. I'm guessing you may have a burning question or two as well. Megan has agreed to answer any further questions from our listeners, so please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com with your questions, and I'll forward them on to Megan. If you enjoyed Megan's interview, there are several others I think you'll dig as well. Patty McCord, former chief talent officer at Netflix, Michelle Geelan, author of Broadcasting Happiness, and Mickey Agrawal, author of Do Cool Shit, are just a few of the many episodes you can find at yscouts.com forward slash podcast. I promise more great interviews are in the very near future. Thanks again for listening.